You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope, and I'm kind of trying to run with a Garden of Eden theme in this episode and thinking about the serpent and the trees. I think I've called this um, COP26 of serpents and trees. And so obviously I'm, I'm pre-willing a little bit about things that are in the news at the moment about uh, the COP and try and tie some things together in uh, a way that might possess a degree of coherence. Here goes. So I was looking at uh, an article with the BBC and it was talking about who was currently attending the COP and it's uh, I'd love to go to one of these things and be part of a Christian group. Um, whether or not that ever happens is another thing. It's certainly not an easy thing in the middle of COVID and, and it's certainly the case that there are a number of Pacific nations who aren't well or at all represented, as I understand it, because of the COVID outbreak. But it turns out there's some 40,000 people attending. And you might push back severely on this. And maybe you've seen the, the mythical figure of some 400 private jets. And it turns out it's, it's something like 73, 75, which is probably not great anyway. Um, it's not a great look from the, the carbon miles, etc. But I am reminded of the fact that we are uh, incarnational beings, we're relational beings, and these sorts of meetings are best done face-to-face in an ideal kind of world. And the fact that I know there are people like Uncle Reverend Ray Minnick on there at the moment, and if you follow Eternity News, which is a a Sydney-based online news source, uh, as well as um, a paper that, that circulated... Uh, Uncle Ray's been um, not quite blogging, uh, what I'm trying to, diarising his visit. And I'm going to quote from him in a minute. So the fact that there are First Nations people, people who've been colonised, who are able to get there and support each other, I think is a valuable thing. But this BBC News article that I read, for example, said that there were 230 delegates from the UK and the cops in Glasgow, so you'd expect a reasonable representation from there. Uh, I was quite surprised there are 479 delegates from Brazil. And in the second half of the program, when we come to talk about uh, deforestation, uh, this will become significant, but not aligned to a country that is direct. Representatives of the fossil fuel industry, 503. That's larger than the largest nation's um, representation which, remember, is Brazil at 479. 503 people there directly are lobbying for the fossil fuel industry. 
It turns out too that the fossil fuel lobbyists are members of 27 country delegations, uh, including countries like Canada and, and Russia, with their own fossil fuel reserves. Um, so to, to add this together, the fossil fuel lobby at COP is larger than the combined total of the eight delegations from the countries worst affected by climate change in the past 20 years. So you're talking about countries in the Pacific or Oceania. More than 100 fossil fuel companies are represented at the COP, with 30 trade associations and membership organisations also present. And can you see the problem with this? Can you see the issue with this? Let me read this visceral quote from Uncle Ray. Over the past two days, I have deliberately avoided the Australian pavilion because it is still a very sore and raw point with me. I'm really struggling with the fact that our Australian government's pavilion is supported by the mining and coal industry. How can the very industries that are the cause of climate change's destructive forces in our country and to our Pacific neighbours also be the ones that convince us that the Morrison government's plan for climate change is a good plan? Now, I'm not taking sides here, um, but, you know, I point to the science in this podcast and so you can read between the lines, right, with what I'm, I might be thinking. It, it To me... This representation would be like Philip Morris sponsoring an event on cancer research or US armaments manufacturers sponsoring a conference on peacekeeping and peacemaking. The fox is running the hen house. And so when, when I read this kind of thing, and hopefully it's you don't see this as being too melodramatic, I turned back to an essay I wrote, part of my master's, and I read bits of it, uh, about the work of Walter Wink. Walter Wink was an American theologian and activist, and he wrote a trilogy about the powers. Now, he identifies the powers as, quote, the systems themselves, the institutions and structures that weave society into an intricate fabric of power and relationships, end quote. Now, when he reads the New Testament, and I don't follow him precisely here, I get what he's trying to do, but I don't fully agree. He dismisses as, quote, gross literalism, the idea that the powers are angelic or demonic beings with an independent existence. But he wants to keep the language to describe, uh, quote, the inner and outer aspects of any given manifestation of power, end quote. The powers are necessary insofar as structures need to exist to order society. So he's identifying the powers with human institutions and, and sees them as a necessary aspect of society. So he's not a, a rampant, um, what's the word I'm looking for, an anarchist. And of course, it's Paul, and I forget where Paul says this about God is a God of order and not of disorder. Sounds like something that would is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the spirituality of these structures can be angelic or demonic, depending on that spirituality. So, for example, Wink reads Daniel 10 as speaking about the angels of nations which have turned their back on their divinely given vocation to order human society well, opposing gods uh, and becoming demonic. Now, elsewhere, and I'm pulling things out of an essay and I don't have the references here, I remember him talking about the idea that you could have a crowd, say, for example, a soccer crowd. I'm not picking on soccer. I love the game. Uh, but you see quite 
uh, amazing forms of violence at these games. And he would say, it's ridiculous to say that there is a demon of the soccer crowd because once the crowd disperses and the violence finishes, what does, happens to the demon? Does the demon disperse? And I would say, my view is, is that there are these suprapersonal beings and that if you get something like a soccer crowd or a, say an anti-vaxxer freedom fighting crowd or or um, crowds of people storming the capital of the United States of America is that there's a spirit or an energy associated with that that resonates with those powers beyond the visible realm rather than just saying it's perhaps what Wink's driving at as an emergent property. Because, you know, it's a bit vague what he's trying to say, I think, anyway. But what he does do, helpfully, is that he identifies that the New Testament vocabulary of powers, so there's, um, and I'm not going to read the Greek, I'm going to retranslate, so powers, authorities, um, sorry, authorities, rulers, powers, and thrones, is the language he uses, and there's Greek words, doesn't matter, is only used unambiguously to refer to human institutions. So in the case of texts like Colossians 1.16, I'm going to read a bit of that at the end in Ephesians 3.10, the powers are inclusive of both the human and the spiritual. So Colossians 1.16 includes uh, amerism, which is simply a phrase that covers everything in between. It's in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So the powers and authorities and all the rest of it refers to both the spiritual and the human institution. In Ephesians 3.10, the wisdom of God is made known through the church to the um, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The heavenly places uh, are where Christ is uh, and where we have been raised up to in Christ um, and is the dwelling place of spiritual evil. This means the heavenlies are a reality to which we have access but share with an unredeemed power. That's why I think it's a bit more than metaphorical. But he sees them as metaphorical symbols of transcendence rather than spatio-temporal. So it's not a place and a time, but it's just this symbolic metaphor. Therefore, the existence of the church proclaims God's wisdom to the spiritual powers behind uh, the Gentile nations in the case of the New Testament. Now, while Wink thinks Christianity has a, a place to morbid overemphasis on sin, he still sees the concept of the fall as being essential to understanding our present situation and the nature of the powers. The powers as the inner manifestation of power structures were made through and for Christ and therefore must be initially good and for our good. So the idea of government of, of some description and of an economy of some description are all good things, at least in, in theory, but they can go wrong. The fall describes how these powers have fallen and are no longer actively for Christ, but God upholds, condemns and presses for their transformation. And that's kind of a key thing we'll come back to later. Therefore, for Wink, the doctrine of the fall affirms the radical nature of evil, the goodness of God, and the initial goodness of creation. As uh, I talk about a lot, start in Genesis 1, as, as indeed Uncle Ray would say. The powers were created for human good and flourishing and are now not fulfilling that purpose. Now the powers represent the inner spiritual of fallen structures. Satan represents the spiritual, spirituality of evil, which has grown over thousands of years of evil choices by human society. Because Wink sees the fall, uh, talk about the fall as employing mythic language, he believes the fall is both temporal and timeless. And by this he means that the fall is a timeless truth about the powers, but is experienced in time. 
So he doesn't hold to an historical Adam falling and so on. There will be a time when the powers will be subjugated by Christ, as it talks about 1 Corinthians 15, which is partially experienced now. Wink believes that we should not expect progress in society for the powers that are present, uh, or at present rather, are both under Satan and God. Yet because God pre-exists Satan, evil emerges rather than pre-exists and redemption will occur. And, you know, I, I don't buy in there either. I think you'll see a, a zigzag through history. It doesn't mean that history steadily progresses towards perfection without the need for an, a divine um, return, the, the eschaton. Uh, but you do see moments of the kingdom taking over and, uh, you know, those little fragments. There's a wonderful quote by... Um, Blast, and I've forgotten his name because you know, you know, by now I'm hopeless with names. Terry Eagleton, uh, in his book Hope Without Optimism, where he talks about those little moments where you see the alternative narrative of the kingdom pushing against that of, of capitalism and the powers of the day, to borrow Wink's language to import it in what he's saying. Um, because the powers are fallen and in rebellion against God, two things follow. Firstly, we are freed from the delusion. Uh, the perfectibility of human individuals and institutions, and secondly, the powers cannot be redeemed uh, by anything within the system, the power system itself. This means that our attempts to achieve social transformation will be limited and that our focus is being on the people of God and that all things require divine transformation at the eschaton. And again, I'd want to say, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peaceable. So we really are meant to be out there and confronting the powers, and you really do see that, I think, for example, in the ministry of Paul, where he leverages off his his Roman citizenship all the time to challenge the Roman authorities. Exactly at the point where he says, you know, in it's what's it, Romans 13, that the powers are appointed by God, which in the Roman context, of course, was challenging him, saying, well, you're not divine. The very claim that was made on Roman coins, for example, about Caesar. And, and although it's not always as crass in the modern day, we clearly do deify our political and economic institutions and our, our corporate structures and all the rest of it. Look at the way people saw Trump as the Messiah, as a for instance. We, we all fall to this at various points. So Wink presents us with an idea of the, the fall, that classic Christian doctrine is explicitly inclusive of human institutions. It's not just about individuals. Um, in understanding systems, organizations, and nations as having a life and a spirituality, this is the key thing, as their own, he can explain how systems become repressive. They develop a repressive spirituality, a demonic one, if you like. Furthermore, it can explain why it is insufficient alone to convert individuals to fix social problems. He states that evangelism, which is important to me, telling people about the gospel, is always social action, and social action is always evangelism, and the two are necessary together. An eschatological hope for transformation, not just of individuals but of institutions, means the end of oppression. And Wink takes seriously the, pr the promise that redemption is on all levels, individuals and the nations uh, which enter the New Jerusalem. And in fact, if you look at that, you'll see, of course, in that account that um, the Tree of Life is for the healing of the nations in Revelation 21. So it's worth pausing there about what it is we want to do, do with that. And it's, it's really that we do need to demonize the fossil fuel industry. Greta Thunberg recently said that politicians 
and I, I think it was just a broad swipe at the whole structure of COP. If the, everybody knows the reality of climate change, everybody knows that it's happening. Every know that everybody knows that human beings are responsible, but it's only um, political structures, and it's only the fossil fuel industry who then turn around and I guess they don't care. And they plan on short-term profits. And I'm just trying to think, I think it was Santos in Australia in their modeling um, was planning for the contingency of a four degree Celsius world, which is essentially the end of civilization as we know it. So they don't care. And we know for 30 odd years that Exxon had its own scientists and they did the research and didn't precisely cover up the science, but funded institutions, um, What's it, the um, Enterprise... Oh, jeez, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's a a particular organisation in the US and they produced these ads which deliberately twisted the science. Things are around, you know, the fact that uh, there are certain glaciers where they were gaining mass and this was meant to be this big cover-up, but it obscured the fact that they were gaining mass and getting more precipitation at one end but disappearing faster at the other. Those sorts of things. So it, it's, you know, returning to the idea that the fossil fuel industry is so well, well represented at COP is that you could have lobbyists and politicians and other people saying, well, the scientists say the planet is warming and, and the fossil fuel industry acting like the serpent in the garden, this agent of chaos saying, did the scientists really say that the planet is warming? Did the scientists really say that coal or oil is really bad for us? Haven't they delivered all these uh, economic benefits for society, these social goods? Do you get where I'm driving with that? I suspect we need to start performing an exorcism of society and be reminded, of course, that in Colossians 1, it says that these powers and authorities are going to be reconciled to God but that might mean their total transformation. In fact, I think it needs to, that maybe in a, a few decades' time, there won't be companies like Exxon, there won't be companies like Shell, unless they've totally transformed. So I'm not talking about demonizing the individuals, but recognizing that the spirituality of these structures and the role that they're playing at a negotiation that's meant to chart our way into a, a carbon-neutral future are playing the role of the devil. Well, welcome back to the program and we're thinking about COP26 and playing with Edenic type language. So I've kind of talked about the fall and talking about Walter Wink and the powers and noting that mixing the metaphors a bit, obviously in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is a creature a creation of God, but it's also a chaos monster and introduces chaos to the garden. And I'm being a bit loose in identifying with that with the Satan or the tempter, but um, 
you get the idea. And that happens in later Christianity. But, you know, I know that those these two things are not exactly the same. But it's the idea that there are there's a corruption of the powers, that the spirituality of the fossil fuel industry has, has gone from something that provides us with cheap, reliable energy to something that's driven purely by profit. And so well after we could have transitioned to renewable energy, we're still having this debate and this discussion about getting around or over coal. And indeed, if I'm just, you might hear me alt-tabbing, because I'm just going to, rather than bang out notes, just go to this, um, just quote from an opinion piece. And it should be, if I've got this right, no, it's an un... I thought this was a, um, no, hang on. I'm looking for the redoubtable uh, George Monbiot, who I don't always agree with, um, but just trying to find his article, and it's in on the Wednesday, 3rd of November. COP26 has to be about keeping fossil fuels in the ground, all else is distraction. And the subtitle is The Hand-Waving and Complexities Obscure a Simple Truth. Nation states must stop funding dirty industries. And indeed, I saw something just recently that Matthias Cormann, who used to be uh, in Australian politics, is now saying we need to end fossil fuel uh, subsidies, the things that keep them going. Uh, And so here's a quote from the article before we move on to the next topic. Um, the recent study in, in Nature, which is a, a big name scientific journal, you've really hit the big time if you publish a paper in that, suggests that the standard 50% chance of avoiding more than one and a half degrees of global warming. Remember, this is the threshold that is meant to keep some Pacific island nations safe. We need to retire 89% of proven coal reserves, 58% of oil reserves and 59% of fossil methane, the so-called natural gas. If we want better odds than 50-50, we need to leave almost all of them untouched. So that's really about no more fossil fuel exploration, no more coal mines, no more fracking. And what's being currently extracted needs to be left there as well. Anyway, I've talked about that. But the other thing about the garden, and here's why I'm freewheeling. I'm just going to flick through these um, various articles as I can find them is that we need to look after our trees. So if you like, that's the other echo of uh, the Garden Eden narrative that I'm kind of riffing on. And again, this is what happens. I'm just looking for the correct tab now. Is that one of the exciting things to come out of the first week? Well, you know, you need to get excited about these things. um, Even if you worry that you won't get the follow-through, at least he's getting an agreement um, for forestation or reforestation. That is, the countries, and I think it's 105 countries, have signed to say, yes, we will leave um, forests intact. Now, this is important for for many, many reasons. So let me read to you um, the or part of the Glasgow leaders declaration on forests and land use and this came out on the 2nd of November and it reads we the leaders of the countries identified below 
emphasise the critical and independent role of forests of all types, biodiversity and sustainable land use in enabling the world to meet its sustainable development goals, to help achieve a balance between anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and removal by sinks, to adapt to climate change and to maintain other ecosystem services. A lot of mixed language there when you think about it. Um, the concept of ecosystem services is again a very anthropocentric point of view. Nonetheless, if we value forests for our own sake, we will by the by protect them for their own sake as well. But it also goes on to reaffirm the um, respective commitments, collective and individual, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, and Sustainable Development Goals and other relevant initiatives. It goes on to reaffirm our respective commitments to sustainable land use and to the conservation, protection, sustainable management and restoration of forests and other terrestrial ecosystems. Uh, they recognise that to meet our land use, climate, biodiversity and sustainable development goals, both globally and nationally, will require transformative further action in the interconnected areas of sustainable production and consumption. So, you know, does that mean um, cutting down on meat and therefore uh, the, um, the crops, the soy, etc. that are grown for those? Uh, infrastructure development, trade, finance and investment and support for smallholders, indigenous peoples. Well, it's good to see that recognised. And local communities who depend on forests for their livelihoods and have a key role in their stewardship. Uh, just recently reading a book, and I'll probably talk about it next week. The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for an Endangered Planet, which is Jane Goodall in conversation with Douglas Abrams. And the Shoots and Roots initiative, which Jane started a number of years ago, implicitly recognises that uh, when people are starving, uh, when, um, I hate to use the word development, but, it, you know, developed versus undeveloped world, but you know, you know what I mean, that if people don't have a... Um, employment and education and, and and actually food to eat you know you grow chicken uh, grow chickens uh, farm chickens grow crops blah, blah 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 then they will resort to cutting down the forests for charcoal uh, and for firewood and, and for other things and go in and, and uh, hunt for bushmeat etc so that the lives of indigenous peoples the the lives of um, the rural poor and the fate of forests which promote biodiversity uh, and obviously act as, as carbon sinks are tied together. So this, this language that's being written recognises that it's, it's not about setting up uh, vast um, national parks that exclude human beings because there are people who've lived alongside these forests for an awfully long time, some of whom, of course, have a much better idea to manage that, how to manage them than we do. So... To, to cut a long story short, there are six uh, key ideas uh, so that we will strengthen our shared efforts to one, conserve forests and other terrestrial ecosystems and accelerate their restoration. Two, facilitate trade and development policies internationally and domestically that promote sustainable development and sustainable commodity production and consumption that work to countries' mutual benefit and do not drive deforestation and land degradation. And I think several years ago, I'm pretty sure several years ago, the Brazilian government went to the world and said, if you want us to keep the forests, you need to pay for it. Clearly we didn't, and look where Brazil has gone. 
thankfully. Uh, we'll see how much it's worth, but they're signatory to this, this new um, agreement. Three, reduce vulnerability, build resilience and enhance rural livelihoods, including through empowering communities, the development of profitable, sustainable agriculture and recognition of the multiple values of forests, while recognising the rights of Indigenous peoples as well as local communities in accordance with relevant national legislation, international instruments, etc. Four, implement and, if necessary, redesign agricultural policies and programs to incentivise sustainable agriculture, promote food security and benefit the environment. So you need good policies and you need to throw money in the right direction. Five, reaffirm international financial commitments and significantly increase finance and investment from a wide variety of public and private sources. So remember that um, this body is meant to raise what is $100 billion each year. Uh, to help people cope with climate change, etc., and surely some of that money could go in, into this area. Or maybe this is a separate pot, I don't know. And finally, six, facilitate the alignment of financial flows with international goals to reverse forest loss and degradation, while ensuring robust policies and systems are in place to accelerate the transition to an economy that is resilient and advances forests, sustainable land use, biodiversity, and climate goals. Now, it should be recognised in all of this that the warmer the climate gets, the less efficient forests are a sink. And the less healthy the forests are, the less efficient for, uh, carbon sinks that they are. And then in fact, old growth forests continue to put pack on wood mass and store carbon in the soil. Of course, the other thing to note is that the warmer, drier the climate becomes, the more we get forest fires. And in that horrible season, 2019-2020, or perhaps it even was earlier, you had uh, tropical rainforests in Australia, for example, burning. And you get regular fires in Indonesia, a lot of those del deliberately lit for slash and burn agriculture, that release a heck of a lot of carbon. So time is running out, and I would say that the whole thing behind this is not an offset for future emissions, but trying to soak up what we've already pumped out there. Now, all this said, I'm now going to jump to an article um, that talks about Australia's emissions. And just to, to go through that briefly, uh, the beginning of the article from the 8th of November in The Guardian again is Australia is likely to be releasing more emissions from deforestation than reported to the United States, a new analysis indicates. Um, and the guts of the article, uh, and there's a quote by Martin Taylor, who's an adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Queensland. He says that it flummoxes me. That's a great word, isn't it? Flummoxes. He flum it flummoxes me what's going on in their models when they are missing such obvious land clearing. How can you possibly say that it's still forest? It's so glaringly obvious something is wrong. So in these land use models, counting areas of forest that are no longer so. And um, the Australian government, quoting further the article, has relied on its reporting of falls in land clearing rates for almost all the reductions that allow it to claim that the country's emissions have fallen by one-fifth since 2005, and hence that Australia has overachieved on its pledged cuts under the Kyoto Protocol. We're one of the land-clearing capitals of the world, and we know, for example, that that iconic species, the koala, is in fact threatened by land-clearing. Um, so, going along a little further... 
one of the problems, the accounting rules agreed to under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change help countries minimise loss of their forests. Under those rules, tree crown cover needs to amount to only 10 to 30% of an area of less than one hectare for it to be treated as a forest. Australia takes the midpoint of the range at 20%. Let me read that to you again. Under the rules of the UN Framework, Tree crown cover needs to amount to only 10 to 30% of an area of less than one hectare. Not really, it doesn't really, to me, sound like a functioning uh, ecosystem where you expect large amounts of carbon to be stored in the soil profile. Um, and Taylor says that the 20% estimate was a fundamental issue that meant um, that the framework completely misses land clearing. So it's, it's deeply problematic. So while it's, it's a wonderful thing that there's a large push uh, to reforest, um, that the thresholds being used will grossly underestimate the amount of land clearing. And there's, if you go to the article, there's one of those, I don't know if you've ever played with this before, where you'll have an, a before and after image and there's a slider bar. So you can do the comparison. So I'm just doing it now as I speak. Um, so northeast of St. George, and I think this is in Queensland, and you can just slide back and forth 2017 to 2018 and uh, the huge decrease in forest coverage. So it's one of those dirty accounting tricks um, so that the areas of um, intact forests are going to be well and truly over-reported. So really, if you, and I'm not going to go through the entire of the article, but that um, there's a quote a bit later uh, by the head of an environmental consulting firm, Matt Drum, um, head of this particular consulting firm, and also formerly with the Federal Department of Climate Change, said land use changes were not reliably calculated. So his firm focused on car tracking carbon emissions by the rest of the economy. And he says it's not a bit of a black box. It's a massive black box. It It's at the point where you report without land use changes. It's much more reliable. So it's just this wonderful rubbery figure. So we're banking so much on this, uh, but the rules um, are really, really slippery. And you can hide a lot in them if you so choose. The last thing I want to leave you with is... Um, an article in the, the Age of Extinction series. And there's a photo essay. So I, I'm, I'm gonna to struggle to, to, um, to describe it, but the picture's taken from a new book entitled The Church Forests of Ethiopia. And, and what it shows you is that Ethiopia is a country, it's, a, it's a quite a poor country, that's undergone large amounts of land change. So over the past century, 90% of Ethiopia's forests have been lost. Uh, but in a, uh, the Amhara province, the only remaining native forests are those that surround the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church buildings. And you can see these wonderful uh, photographs in the report, and I suggest you look it up, you may want to buy the book, of these little churches, and they're surrounded by this little um, island of forest. And it really does, you know, harken back to this idea that's retained in Orthodox tradition of the importance of Eden. 
Uh, to quote the article, the symbol of the tree is at the heart of the Christian story, from the tree of life standing in the Garden of Eden, Genesis, to its redemptive role in Revelation, bridging the river of life and bearing fruit for the healing of the nations, as I quoted earlier. And if, as we I have done and, and discovered in my reading, that one can directly associate the Garden of Eden with the temple sanctuary, and if the language that's used to, to till and to keep, uh, the Hebrew words abad and shema, are also used as, as a sanctuary language, language of worship. And if you put that together within the ancient near, uh, ancient um, east, that they had, for example, like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that the, um, the king's power to rule, wisdom to rule, was manifest in, in the kind of gardens that they, that they kept, then you get a really strong sense that the only thing that says that human beings, um, or the thing, what points to our what our responsibility is, and what would point to our maturity as a species, or maturity as the church to to really um, own this language from a religious perspective, is how we care for trees. And, and I'm, you know. In saying this, I'm not. What am I trying to say here? Um, I don't think there's any any getting around it. Uh, incarnate beings, bodily beings, put into a, a physical creation, and that the biblical writers should choose care for trees to uh, help us to understand uh, how it is that. Well, put it this way, to, to recap from, from last week, the language of Abad and Shammah to, to serve and to protect allowed the elements of the sanctuary, the temple, to contribute to the whole act of worshipping God. And the same language is used the trees of the Garden of Eden to say the same, to look after the trees, to allow them to grow, to reach their own potential in their own createdness, contributes to the worship of God in their own tree-like fashion. How's that? And so COP26 is a time when the church should be not listening to the fossil fuel industry, not listening to the serpent, but listening to the trees as we listen to the entire creation grown. And and move. it's really time to move forward and to move on. And again, the church should be at the forefront of this whole this whole um, endeavour. And so I'm very grateful for people like... Um, Uncle Reverend uh, Ray Minikin and other members of the church who are there, may they shame those who don't even consider this to be an important issue, who think that the world is going to burn. I could go on, but I'm just going to stop here. Okay, so hopefully that there's, there's some sense of, of logic and continuity that I've taken two metaphors from the garden, that of the serpent, which is our fossil fuel industry, and that of the trees, um, which we turn to, which we rely upon, uh, and, and now, in a very strong sense, they rely upon us, just as indeed the metaphor, the language of the garden says that they do. So thank you for listening, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, 
Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.